This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, and grab a stool. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer. However, there is no live stream tonight because, well, tonight's program is not live. Instead, I bring you my 9-11 19th anniversary special. Coming up in Hour 2, my interview with the late Philip Marshall, a veteran airline pilot and contract pilot for the CIA and author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Phil died less than five months after this interview first aired in September of 2012. But first, Hour 1, we go back to August 21st, 2016, for a conversation with Dr. Judy Wood as she discusses evidence that the Twin Towers were brought down using some kind of direct, directed energy technology. The 9-11 attacks, our generation's Pearl Harbor, you mentioned to someone in their 20s, 9-11, likely they'll have very little or no memory of it. Now, whatever you think happened on that day, you have to agree that there are so many questions that remain unanswered as to how the greatest air defense system in the history of mankind was somehow circumvented, exactly who was involved. Uh, So many questions, perhaps chief among them, how were the World Trade Center towers brought down? The World Trade Center buildings, Building 7 and others. It wasn't just the North and South Towers, remember. Was it the impact of, of the jetliners and, and the heat generated from the jet fuel that caused some sort of a structural failure? That's sort of the official version. Is it possible there was something else involved, some other technology perhaps? And uh, it's a great pleasure to have. It's been quite a while since I've had Dr. Judy Wood on the program. She's a Ph.D., a degree from Virginia Tech, a former professor of mechanical engineering. She's researched expertise in experimental stress analysis, structural mechanics, uh, deformation analysis, materials characterization, and materials engineering science. Her research has involved testing materials, including complex material systems, in the area of photomechanics, or the use of optical and image analysis methods to determine physical properties of materials and measure how materials respond to forces placed on them. 
Her area of expertise involves inferometry in forensic science. Uh, she taught graduate and undergraduate engineering classes and, and has authored or co-authored over 60 peer-reviewed papers and journal publications in her areas of expertise. In the time since 9-11, she has applied her expertise in material science image analysis, uh, as I mentioned, and uh, a forensic study of over 40,000 images, hundreds of video clips, a large volume of witness testimony, analysis of dust samples, seismic data, and the analysis of other environmental evidence pertaining to the destruction of the World Trade Center complex. And Dr. Wood has conducted a comprehensive forensic investigation of what physically happened to the World Trade Center site on 9-11. And based on her analysis of the evidence she gathered in 2007, she filed a federal case for science fraud against the contractors who contributed to the official National Institute of Standards and Technology report about the destruction of the World Trade Center towers. This case was filed in the U.S. Supreme Court in December 2009. To this day, Dr. Wood's investigation and body of evidence is compiled in her book, Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. It's the only comprehensive forensic investigation in the public domain. Dr. Judy Wood, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Very good. Well, thank you for having me. And it has been, I'm guessing, well, the book came out in, uh, was it 2007, did we say? Uh, well, it was written back around then, but it was 2010. 2010. So it's been about six years since, uh, since we talked. Hope you're well. Yes. Let me ask you first off. Now, this book obviously generated a lot of, of controversy. Uh, anytime anyone delves into 9-11 and is exploring perhaps, you know, alternative explanations rather than the official explanation, it's bound to generate controversy. But the interesting thing is, is here, even within sort of the 9-11 truther movement, it created such controversy. I mean, you were disavowed by uh, the 9-11 truther movement, which I find, well, not, you know what, it's not surprising. It's such a divisive community. I mean, if you're not with them, sort of 100%, then you're against them which is my understanding. I've, I've experienced that firsthand. But why specifically do you think, uh, even within the 9-11 truther movement, you're such a controversial um, person? Well, I don't know if, the, if controversial is the right, uh, the right term for it. <clears throat> controversial is usually a term given uh, that implies doubt. You know, wh- whether someone is talking about facts or, or fiction. And uh, anything that I've discussed, and it's in my book as well, is just evidence, an analysis of the evidence as well as parallel evidence. So if someone doesn't want you to discuss the evidence, what do they do? Distract you. It's kind of like the political uh, scene. You know, they don't want you to discuss the facts. They they say, oh, you have uh, uh, boogers up your nose or something. Right, you know, right. They, they you take it off into something unrelated to the evidence. <clears throat> but if you just talk about the evidence, if somebody really wants to know the truth, they shouldn't have a problem with it. Precisely, precisely. And yet, they do, which... So what does that tell you? Well, it, it suggests a number of things. One, that the group has been infiltrated by disinformation uh, agents. Uh, I mean, that's uh, that's the one that leaps immediately to mind. Uh, and, and the other thing is, which I've come to, to realize is that the whole controlled demolition theory has become almost like a religion. 
Now, I have a, a lot of respect for people like Dr. Richard Gage. He's been on the program, and I think he's he's doing his, his, his best to try to piece this puzzle together. But if if you suggest that it may not be controlled demolition, it's almost like you become an immediate pariah. They don't want to hear anything else. And I think it's because when people have so much um, invested in a theory, they almost become defined by it. And if you take that away from them, then who are they? What are they? And that's very threatening to them. It's almost like a self-preservation mechanism. Those are my theories. What do you think? Um, Well, if you want to control the message, you know know that that there are going to be people questioning the event. Do you think those who planned 9-11 forgot to plan a (laughs) cover-up? At least one. Maybe five, maybe ten. Yeah, so build it and they will come. A place for these people to be collected. I call them collection agencies. <laughs> <laughs> That's very clever, yes. And then you give them a pacifier, and it, and it keeps them out of trouble. Right, right. And the easiest way to control groups is to uh, demand consensus, you know, talking points. Right, right. And if somebody veers off from the talking points, they get uh, excommunicated from the group. That's that's a very very lucent cogent explanation. Absolutely, yeah. So if someone's trying to control your thinking, you know they want you in a group. And if you're not in a group, you it's harder to control people. Right. Right. Yes. So uh, and here yeah, you I, come I along don't... with this uh, with with your evidence that doesn't fit that narrative, and you are a disruptor. Well, the, the first thing with the evidence, uh, is in being a forensic engineer, you first have to determine what happened. Absolutely, the, absolutely. The easiest way to cover something up is to get people to skip that step and just assume what happened and go on and start arguing about how it happened before you've determined what it is. Right, right. And, you know, look at the uh, official story. You know, they're down to, to step three or four. You know, you know, who did it and why they did it. They hate us for our freedoms. Right. And we should point out that that, that, that uh, your work is not focused on who did it. You know, was there a stand-down right. order? Exactly. What was the motivation? You're simply looking at physical evidence uh, based on your background in engineering uh, to explain why those structures failed the way they did. Or, or what was going on, and, and uh, you know, different types of energy could be involved. Let's let's look at them. One is, you know, like what caused the building to come apart? <clears throat> was it thermal energy? Did the bu- buildings get cooked to death? Well, you had uh, fourteen people walk out of stairway B who don't remember having been cooked to death. You know, so that that's out the window. Uh, was it kinetic energy? You know, bombs or Gravity collapse. Um, there's a lot of evidence that discards that, which is, uh, you know, people in stairway B didn't get smashed. They right. didn't get pulverized. They didn't get squished. They right. walked out. I want to also just take a moment because, as I as I mentioned, in the hour here, we can't get into all of the evidence. But let me ask you on a personal note. What has this meant for you as an academic? publishing this book, Where Did the Towers Go? What does it cost you in terms of, I don't know, career, personally? I'm guessing that this 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 must have been a very difficult decision for you to whether to publish or not. Uh, it wasn't difficult because it needed to be done. And I felt like I was in the best position to do it. 
uh, not having a, a immediate family that would be put at risk. Somebody with an immediate family that would be put at risk would have a much tougher time. Right, right. And how about but, pr- professionally? Uh, oh, it, it's it was it's a one way ticket out of a profession. It's it's. Um, but I don't like to play pity parties. Uh, I understand. I understand. Yeah, it's it's about the evidence, and it's it's this important. Uh, I, I will say that when I decided I was going to do this, I uh, called my mother and told her, and she said, "Well, if you do that, you won't have a career." And I said, "If I don't, nobody will." And I think that's as as time's gone on, I think uh, people can see that that is where things are going. Right. Okay. So. A little bit of a primer here for those not familiar with directed free energy technology. What do we mean by that, directed free energy technology? Well, I was explaining about uh, how we can rule out kinetic energy being involved as a destructive mechanism and thermal energy. You know, the buildings weren't cooked to death, nor were they beaten to death. Like by gravity collapse or by bombs, you know, blowing things up moving things and having something hit something else. Uh, a lot of reasons for that. You'd have people squashed instead of walking out um, with, you know, blue sky above them. <clears throat> and also uh, there'd be a seismic signal. There, there's a lot of other things with it. But what I'm describing as directed energy, the energy was instructed or directed to do something differently than it normally does. The binding forces of matter are usually attracted to each other, but they were somehow instructed to reverse their sign and repel each other. All right. And and let me ask you then, how, how did you begin to piece this together? What was the first indication for you uh, that this might have been a directed free energy uh, weapon of some sort. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't start with the weapon. I don't start with with the answer and then go backwards. Uh, I start with looking at what happened, and you keep looking and, and let the evidence tell you what happened. Don't tell the evidence what it's supposed to show you. Right. Okay. So let me rephrase. What was the first indication for you, and how quickly did it come that the official version was incorrect? There was something else happening here. Oh, it came that day. I was in the faculty conference room and looking at the TV set of the building, you know, frothing up into dust, and they're calling it a collapse. And like, wait a minute. You, know, you guys aren't buying this, are you? It's, it's, you know, there's something wrong with the story. And uh, folks looked at me like I was crazy. And, and uh, when you say this is not a collapse... Explain that. What do you mean? This is not a collapse. I mean, for well, the, to, the, to the uninitiated, look it looked like. like a collapse. Well, imagine what a, a collapse would look like. This piece falls into this piece. This goes concurrent. This goes, you know, pop. Kind of like how an avalanche gets going. You know, it doesn't start one, two, three all at once. One part gets another part going, which gets another part going. Right, right. <clears throat> Instead, we saw the building turning to dust from top to bottom. Right, being pulverized as as the building. Uh, pulverized no? has a specific meaning. It okay. means uh, it, it, kinetic energy is involved, a grinding. And this was pieces were flying through the air and turning into dust with with nothing hitting them but air. Hmm. And and how would you? Uh, now, one of the things I've been told about the construction of the of the World Trade Center uh, towers uh, is, um, you know, a lot of a lot of drywall, uh, pretty flimsy construction. 
I've been told. This is one of the, the, the things that, that's out there, that this was not a well-designed building. Uh, oh, and that it, there was, was, it was uh, pretty well-designed, but you have to look at, again, at what happened. Instead of um, assuming it was a poor construction or assuming uh, airplanes did something to you know, instead of making assumptions, it, it's really, it takes an awful lot of discipline to just look at what happened. Right. No, but I'm, I'm wondering, because of the amount of drywall in that building, uh, could does, that does not drywall cause steel to turn into dust in midair? Right. No. Excellent point. But I'm just wondering whether the 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 presence of all that dust in the air in part could be attributed to the fact that so much of the construction was comprised of, as I say, a gypsum, um, gypsum rock. There was a, a tremendous. There's a about one fifth of the total weight of the building was steel. One fifth. Okay. Steel frame. All right. And you can see, you know, in videos, the pieces coming down and they don't ever hit the ground they turn to dust before they hit the ground pieces of metal that are turning uh, to dust let me just think on that for a moment and let everyone else listen and think on that pieces of metal as they're descending are turning to dust yes they look like they're um, like an Alka-Seltzer tablet just frothing up into dust remarkable okay so it, people don't know what would cause that, so they, they tend to uh, ignore that piece of evidence. But instead of needing to know, that's what's important about just putting off any kind of um, assumptions. Right. And just going with what the evidence shows. And not feeling the need to play name that weapon. Name that weapon. Okay. All right. I'm with you. Yeah, play spin the dial and name that weapon. Right. The name of the weapon is not important. Actually, it, it's counterproductive because, you know, people start getting um, trendy terms and they name drop trendy terms, terms and pretty soon they don't even know what, they're, what the, the gizmo does. Right. And pretty, pretty soon people are imagining some sort of a laser beam with, you know, Dr. Evil uh, next to it. And, right. And then you lose the room. I do have uh, my name for it, but, you know, I hesitate at mentioning it because uh, people start, you might start using that and make initials for it or something, but it's, it's just what the evidence shows. Right, okay. Magnetic electrogravitic nuclear reactions. Those, Electromagnetic those nuclear? Magnetic electrogravitic electro- nuclear reactions. Electrogravitic nuclear reactions, okay. All In right. other words, it involves magnetism, electricity, and... Uh, gravity. All right, and and has this has this technology been around a while? Uh, yes, but not uh, advertised in in the Sears catalog or anything. <laughs> no, no doubt. Okay. And and uh, what I like to stress, and what's also in my book, I show parallel evidence. Now, there is evidence of something we do know that produces the same results. Uh, and one example is tornadoes. Ah, interesting. Okay, tell me more. Uh, you know, weird things happen with tornadoes, like um, anti-gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it it may follow an electrical signal. Um, you have the buried cable. Sometimes it follows that. <clears throat> There's and it also uh, dustifies things, uh, or it dismembers things. Um, one. Um, video I saw, I think it was like three years ago, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that there's a whole bunch of these tornadoes in the area, and they showed some flying trucks. Right, right. 
Do you remember that? Absolutely. And I've seen the, and I remember the movie, uh, you know, the, uh, about those storm chasers. I can't remember the name of it, but, uh. Right. But isn't that strange? It was the, uh, the trailer part of the truck. The trailer part of the truck. Right. Okay. You didn't see dumpsters flying around. Okay, so where are you going with that, Dr. Wood? What is uh, that? Mean? Just looking at, you know, themes here, but wasn't it interesting that you had that, like, where does the wind come from if you're going to say wind picked it up? Where does it's the certain, wind come from? Yeah, if this if this trailer is sitting on the ground, what causes it, you know, it's a lot of weight. What causes it to suddenly fly upward? Right. How much wind would you need to shoot up from the ground? It, you know, that doesn't, you know, that, that, um, doesn't work as an explanation. First thing you do realize is an anti-gravity aspect of it. They also showed a house that had the roof removed. Uh, big screen television was intact. There's a, a bookcase with a stack of printer paper on it, and that wasn't just lodged at all. The paper wasn't fluffed up or anything. And th- but the roof was gone. Right, right. Are you going to tell me the wind blew the roof off? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I see what you're saying. I mean, this is not just indiscriminate. This is, there's a, a degree of precision here. Right. And that's just a natural occurrence. Now, mm-hmm. do you think uh, somebody hasn't weaponized that? It would stand to reason. Absolutely. It would stand to reason. Um, there's other evidence that, that that you point, and there's some interesting photographs, and these are available online as well, I believe, uh, and that is... Um, vehicles, for example, that were... Toasted cars. What did you call them? Toasted cars. Toasted cars. In, they're toast. They're history. Something happened to them, and you can't fix them. you got to get another one. Right. In, 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 uh, and uh, in, some, in some cases, uh, I believe there was a taxi cab and maybe a police cruiser. I can't remember if there was a police cruiser, but there was certainly a taxi cab. And it's... Right. Is it's it over on, the Roosevelt, over on the Roosevelt Expressway, was it? Um, the FDR drive. FDR drive. I don't know how it got there. Let me be say this over and over again because the, my detractors like to say, oh, she claims that, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how that got there, but the damage to it is mighty strange. Uh, that the uh, polycarbonate lights are not melted, but the inside of the car is totally toasted. So if you have some rip-roaring fire going on inside the car, isn't it going to make those lights on top like they're on a hot grill? Right, right. And there are a number of vehicles around the World Trade Center tower in a similar, suffering like similar over damage. Over 1,400. 1,400 vehicles? Yep. And in some cases, uh, the vehicle, I mean, it doesn't show any external distress. I mean, it's not like it's scorched on the outside. Right. It's just weird things like that particular police car. Uh, the front door is completely toasted, and the back door is pristine. Dr. Judy, stay put. We'll be back with more in a moment. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Before the break, Dr. Wood, you compared the technology behind directed energy to a tornado. Now, tornadoes, as you pointed out, they create conditions of anti-gravity. They tear things apart or dustify them, and they tend to follow electrical signals. In fact, you mentioned that tornadoes will often follow the path of underground electrical cables. And we were also discussing vehicles, some 1,400 vehicles in the vicinity of the World Trade Center towers, including on the FDR freeway. 
that ended up upside down on the roofs, but otherwise undamaged. Using the tornado analogy, would that explain how those cars ended up on their roof? Well, there, um, whatever's happening is a you know particular zone. That's when I start realizing there's some involvement of some some field effects. Field effects, okay. Uh, like you know where I, something would happen in one place and not another. Like there's also there's a spot on that car that um, or one of the cars next to it where there's a circular spot where it's pristine and around that is totally toasted. And fire doesn't work that way. You don't have something's completely scorched and something's pristine one nanometer away. You know, fire works as, you know, hot, cold, and shades of gray in between. Right, right. And this is just a pristine delineation, which is an interference uh, type of effect. Right. Uh, but the... the vast number of these cars is just incredible. They appeared to go into spontaneous combustion. Let me stress, appeared to go into spontaneous combustion. Uh, that, you know, it, it looked like fire, but if you have plastic that isn't melted and paper that isn't burning, what is it? You know, is it plasma or, or what? Right. And this, this technology... Uh, that was involved, does it leave some sort of a marker? Uh, for example, those who, who swear up and down that it was controlled demolition and they talk about nanothermite and they look for, you know, traces of it in the, in the dust and so forth. Uh, well, but does this technology leave a marker? Uh, well, the evidence is the marker. Now, as for controlled demolition, the, the buildings were demolished in a controlled fashion. But it was, you know, thermite is not, you know, what did thermite do to the buildings? Yeah, the, the folks who present that don't ever make that connection. Does thermite cause things to turn into dust in midair? It does not, as far as we know. <laughs> and it's also not used to control demolitions because it cannot be controlled. Thermite is a you know 19th century uh, welding material. It works through heat transfer, and heat transfer takes time. Right. Well, that's when they stick the the word the the, uh, the prefix nano on there. I guess to sort of new and improved. Super new and improved. Yes. Super Although super mini micro nanothermite. Exactly. And then, but the big question for me has always been: How do you wire a 110 story building without anybody noticing? Oh, uh, more than that, how do you uh, turn off cell phones in in Manhattan while you're wiring it? Aha! Uh-huh. You were mentioning. I had suggested the thermite. Yes, and how difficult it would be, you know, if it's controlled demolition well, using. It's not difficult. It's just sort of impossible. And uh, nanothermite, because it works, thermite works through thermal conductivity. Nanothermite would be faster, so you have even less time for the thermal conductivity. And I mentioned yeah. why, trying to wire 110 building or 110 right. floors, and, and you said you if ever you drive along and you come to a, a blasting zone, it says blasting zone, turn off cell phones and two-way radios. I hadn't, I haven't experienced that, but tell me more about that. Well, uh, it, they could accidentally, the frequency, accidentally trip a wire that's, that's rigged for demolition. Oh, is that right? Like if they're going to blow up a side of a mountain to build a road through. Right. Uh, they wire it up, but, but if you're, while you're driving through the area, it says turn off cell phones and two-way radios. So you don't accidentally trip it. 
And you can imagine how many people would be wandering around with cell phones on Wall Street. So I can't think of a city except maybe Tokyo that has a higher density of those. That, that makes sense. Right. So that could have caused it to go off prematurely. So therefore, another reason to probably rule out, uh, you know, wiring that so building. We're, you know, getting away from uh, what happened. And there's a particular piece of evidence that was absent on 9-11 that would be required if it was a thermite or, or a high heat type deal. And do you know what that is? No, tell me. Let me see if I can play this uh, clip. Little Manfred Mann here yeah. on the program. Okay, blinded by the light, a flash. Yeah. Is, was anybody blind by the light? Nobody saw some huge, bright, you know, like uh, a giant Fourth of July sparkler. That's true. That's true. No reports of that whatsoever. So, and there was unburned paper fl- fluttering all over the city. Indeed, there was, hauntingly so. Um, now, back to the uh, you mentioned the field effects, and we talked about the cars, the overturned cars, and some cars were sort of scorched, and others were were not. But so, talk to me about some of the other field effects. Talk to me, for example, about weather anomalies. Anomalies. Well, there's. Uh Windows are an interesting thing. There were uh, rounded holes through window glass without any other breaks in the windows. Rounded holes. Rounded holes. And how... How do you get a glass cutter to even do that? Exactly. Now, how would how would the directed free energy a technology cause uh, something like that? Let, let me uh, back up. Whatever technology was used that day... Uh, it was a technology that was demonstrated to do what was done, you know, without need to name it at all. But it turns out, if you look at what it did, it can be used for good rather than evil. In other words, it can be used to uh, produce free energy. In the same way that on uh, uh, August 6, 1945, uh, that was evidence of nuclear power plants. No, nuclear power plants did not destroy Hiroshima. But what happened at Hiroshima was evidence that that same kind of uh, technology could be used in a good way for nuclear power plants. Right, right. And that's what I mean by directed free energy technology. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a it's a it's a kind of an umbrella term, isn't it? Right, right. The uh, the technology that was used on 9-11 and the evidence presented is evidence that free energy technology exists. Right. Okay. Now, I want to talk about some of the weather anomalies briefly here. Uh, we are coming up on another break, but we'll start the conversation now and continue okay. it after the break. Talk to me about hurricanes offshore at the time. Uh, we don't know uh, what it, you know... Why it was or whatever, but it was mighty strange that it was not heavily announced. It was very underreported. For four days straight before 9-11, a Category 3 hurricane was headed straight to New York City. Now, I remember uh, in 2005 when Hurricane Rita was thought to be headed for Houston, they did a voluntary evacuation before it would become a mandatory evacuation, just in case, you know, it kept going. Right. Yeah, if, if they don't know where it's going, 
Why aren't you warning people? Yeah, this is a this is a a, a category three. Did you say heading yes. towards New York? Uh, and yet, for three days, and yet no word of uh, voluntary evacuation, nothing. Despite the fact they didn't really know where this Category 3 Supposedly, was headed. If somebody you know, doesn't know where a hurricane's going exactly, uh, you know, why wouldn't they uh, do a, a voluntary evacuation? Exactly. So, um, what does that, or what may that Hurricane 3 uh, category three hurricane ha- have to do with the directed free energy technology? Well, I have no proof of anything, but it was mighty uh, peculiar that it was there and, and underreported. Uh, it was you know quite strange. So I started looking into well, what is a hurricane going round, round, round? It's sort of like a Tesla coil, and it can create field effects. So let's go look at the weather in that area. Uh, just outside of a hurricane, you still have field effects. The birds know to, to head for cover. They can feel it. Some people with arthritis can feel it coming. Right. Uh, it turns out the three major airports surrounding Manhattan all reported thunder that day on 9-11. Despite the fact there was... It was sun, sunshine Yeah, it was overhead. blue skies. And the hurricane stopped... Uh, just off the end of Long Island, the outer bands were right at Long Island. It was actually raining at Cape Cod. And then that turned around and started heading out of town that afternoon. So connect the dots for me here as best you can. Is it possible that the hurricane was uh, created by the the um, this directed energy device, or is it possible it was inadvertently steered out of New York's path once the device was turned on, or what are we saying well, here? <laughs> well, there's a high pressure zone moving eastward, and uh, you know it was a question of when they're going to meet. Uh, they met precisely at 10 o'clock over Manhattan. <laughs> you can see the how the pressure systems uh, intermingle at that time. But instead of speculating, look at the at the effects. You have an underreported hurricane, and if if someone cannot control the weather, why would they have let it go unreported? So it implies someone has control of the weather. Whether they created it or it happened to be there, whatever the case is, how can you be a hundred percent sure? It's not going to make landfall, or it's not going to stall out. JFK Airport is right there at sea level. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And and uh, if it hung out there any longer than it did, you would have had some major flooding from the storm surges. We're not talking about you know the wind effects so much as you have all this water building up. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, let's pick up on that point when we come back. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We were talking about this level three hurricane that was headed towards New York City in the days leading up to 9-11, trying to imagine the potential devastation, and yet there were no evacuation orders given. I mean, a, a category three hurricane slamming into New York, 
I mean, no, it's not a Category 5, it's a Category 3, but still, on a, on a, on a population, it, like that would have been devastating. Actually, it was a Category 3 the day before. It was Category 1 on 9-11 because it was meeting that other storm system, but it remained a Category 1 for several days after that, even after it turned around and went off. Mm, okay. Uh, but uh, it, it was so underreported that there was a, a news thing, I think it was in 2010, or Geraldo Rivera celebrating 40 years of reporting on hurricanes, and they show various videos. And then he says, well, except one funny thing. Too bad there wasn't a hurricane on 9-11. Why would he say that? He was thinking it would have changed history if there had been. Oh, I see. Okay. But right, was, right, right. You know, here's somebody who studies hurricanes, who is unaware of it. Interesting, interesting. Now... For those who think that this idea of a directed energy weapon is sort of pie in the sky, the U.S. Navy is now mounting these on on their ships. I mean, they're field testing these. I think it's the USS Ponce. Um, a couple years ago, they actually installed one of these devices uh, on a destroyer. I think it's a destroyer. So, I mean, I mean, is there any relationship between? These what they're calling these laser weapon systems, and what you're talking about? No, uh, this is more of field effects. Uh, here's an example: your cell phone and a cell phone tower. Your your cell phone doesn't work unless it's within the range of the cell phone tower. Right. Call that the field in which it works. So you need two things: you need one field, and then you need the cell phone that operates within it. And th- that's what uh, the interaction of different fields would do. Like, uh, for example, let's say you have a static field over the whole city. Right. And then you have a radio frequency signal that you interfere within that in, in some specific place. Okay. All right. Um, the example we have of that is what John Hutchison does. I was just going to ask you about Mr. Hutchison. <laughs> yes. Yes, the Hutchison effect, uh, where uh, levitation of of heavy objects. Um, I was just I, I was just with uh, with John back in February at his at his uh, house in in Gold uh, Beach, Oregon. Neat. And he has kind of well, he sold most of that um, uh, equipment that was used to, to create the Hutchison effect, I guess, to a German company, and he's sort of moved on to other things, but he's still using some of the same. Uh, principles, but so yeah. Tell me more about w- w- what the connection might be between the Hutchison effect and what you're talking about. Is it one well, and the I same? I call that parallel evidence. It's it, we know uh, about John Hutchison's work, and we can uh, you know well used to be able to go into his lab and watch it demonstrate, and it turns out it produces the same phenomena that we saw in 9/11. One of the things that uh, the Hutchison effect produced was. Um, Luminescence without heat. Right, turning a, uh, a transmutation of, of metal into, I don't know, gelatinous material. Right, jellification. Jellification, okay. Yeah, that's that's one term for it. Um, it it uh, you know also uh, um, has anti gravity effects. Right. Um. And uh, also bends things in weird ways, like getting a solid beam and making a pretzel out of it. And we saw some of those on 9-11. We certainly did. And uh, the levitation 
uh, that might explain how some of those 1,400 cars got flipped over? Well, not necessarily flipped over, but uh, toasted. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, some what of a field effect. Okay, we're going to come back and spend just another couple of minutes wrapping things up with Dr. Judy Wood, and then I have some audio from news reports that aired in the aftermath of 9-11 I thought you might find interesting. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We were talking about John Hutchison, a discoverer of the Hutchison Effect, which was a series of very strange occurrences he observed and recorded in his lab after playing around with high-voltage electricity, high-voltage electricity, levitation, fusion of various metals, ferrous with non-ferrous materials, other solids turning gelatinous, and, and whether there might be some connection between the Hutchison effect and the directed energy technology used on 9-11. Any anecdotal evidence that you've collected from people who maybe reported some of these strange field effects and, and actually witnessed them firsthand? Uh, perhaps, I don't know, maybe there, maybe someone did oh, witness oh, some yeah. levitation. There's one firefighter going uh, across the top floor of Tower 3, and he turns around, the hall he just walked through just disappeared. The hallway that just was right disappeared. When building two started to uh, dustify. Right. And it took out. Remember that metal chunk missing out of building three. The guy just walked across there. And it didn't collapse. It just disappeared. It just it just disappeared. Is his term for it. Uh, then there's uh, a guy down on FDR Drive who uh, witnessed a car going into, as he described it, spontaneous combustion. But, you know, like typical people, they want to have a reason for it. So he, he thought, well, maybe a fireball rolled down from the towers and hit the car. <laughs> right, right. As, as, as well as he could do. Um, yeah, things uh, disintegrating, turning to dust, uh, fusion of dissimilar materials. Oh, there's a good uh, piece of evidence that's, that's come to light since the last talk with you. Remember the Pope visit? The Pope visit. So uh, was that about a year ago? Right, okay. Pope Francis. Uh, it, when the Pope visited, he visited the memorial. Yes. And he visited this uh, Bible artifact that had uh, what looked like previously liquid metal re-solidified in it. Right, yes. Uh, remember, one of the Hutchison things is uh, uh, liquefied metal without heating it. Well, if that were hot... The papers would have burned up. Excellent point. Excellent point. Fusion of of dissimilar materials. Uh, Which reminds me, of course, there were people that were claiming, and there were some videos to substantiate this, this molten metal uh, that was was, um, uh, pouring out and and remained molten, uh, by some reports, several days after the the, uh, the towers were destroyed. Well, that... Orange stuff pouring out of the building, we don't know what material it was. Was it water that was, you know, luminescent or what? We don't know. It was not like heated metal falling because it stayed uh, the same color all the way down. Right. Also, it poured out one window, stopped, and then poured out the next window. 
the window it had been pouring out of, if it's like uh, molten iron or whatever, um, that's that's melting point is like fifteen thirty five uh, centigrade. Aluminum melts at six sixty centigrade, a lot lower. Right, right. The aluminum cladding outside that window was not melted. Ah, interesting. <laughs> so if you, if you observe the evidence instead of being goal oriented for you know having a, an outcome that you want and then cherry picking data to support that, but if you really want to know what happened, the evidence will tell you. And that is precisely what you will walk through when you join us here in Toronto yes. on Sunday, September the 11th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium from 1 to 4 p.m. And um, again... I'd, I'd like to add why that is. this is so important. Please it's do. Vital. This isn't a case of just, you know, who did it or, or like what technology was used. So he who controls the energy does control the people, but he who controls their perception controls everything and it's all about perception management absolutely absolutely if, if well put uh, airplanes running into buildings oh maybe bin laden put thermite in the building you know still everything else is the same right right but this is a whole different ball of wax <laughs> you got that right. You have that to, right. Trying to hide from, from the public. Dr. Wood, thank you for spending an hour with us this evening. Well, great. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for being interested in looking at facts. Okay, that was Dr. Judy Wood, author of Where Did the Towers Go? Now, I have a couple of clips I want to play. This first one is William Rodriguez, who worked as a janitor in the basement of the North Tower of the World Trade Center during the September 11, 2001 attacks. Again, he's in the basement when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the building. Here's what he witnessed. I worked there for 20 years and I was a janitor, the person that cleaned all the floors. The building has six up levels of basement. The support companies for the cleaning of the World Trade Center was, were located on B1. While I was there at 8.46, all of a sudden we hear boom, an explosion so hard that pushed us up. When I went to verbalize it, uh, like six seconds after, we hear that boom, that impact all the way on the top. So two different events. And at that very moment, when I, when I said, oh my God, a guy comes running into the office and <clears throat> this guy had his hands extended, both arms like this, and his skin was pulled totally from both arms and he was hanging from the top of the fingertips like he was clothing. And I thought at that time that it was clothing. And when I went to say something, I realized, I look at his face, I realized that he had missing parts of his face. We hear boom, 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 different explosions. And I asked the fire department, he said, what is this explosion? And what they said was, maybe it's the gas tank from the kitchen. No, the kitchens were all electric. Did you get that? So Rodriguez is an eyewitness, and he's saying that those two explosions happened before the plane hit the building. Okay, now here's private citizen Donald Trump calling into New York City TV station WWOR Channel 9 on the day of 9-11 to give his thoughts on the destruction of the Twin Towers. There's a great deal of question about whether or not the damage and, and the ultimate destruction of the buildings was caused 
by the airplanes, by architectural defect, or possibly by bombs or, or aftershocks. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it was an architectural defect. You know, the World Trade Center was always known as a very, very strong building. Don't forget, that took a big bomb in the basement. Now, the basement is the most vulnerable place because that's your foundation. And it withstood that. And I got to see that area about three or four days after it took place because one of my structural engineers actually took me for a tour because he did the building. And I said, I can't believe it. The building was standing solid and half of the columns were blown out. I mean, so this was an unbelievably powerful building. Uh, if you know anything about structure, it was one of the first buildings that was built from the outside. The steel, the reason the World Trade Center had such narrow windows is that in between all the windows, you had the steel on the outside. So you had the steel on the outside of the building. That's why when I first looked, and you had big, heavy I-beams. When I first looked at it, I couldn't believe it because there was a hole in the steel. And this is steel that was, you remember the, the width of the windows in the World Trade Center, folks. I think, you, you know, if you were ever up there, they were quite narrow. And in between was this heavy steel. I said, how could a plane, even a plane, even a 767 or 747 or whatever it might have been, how could it possibly go through the steel? I happen to think that they had not only a plane, but they had bombs that exploded almost simultaneously because I just can't imagine anything being able to go through that wall. Most buildings are built with the steelers on the inside around the elevator shaft. This one was built from the outside, which is the strongest structure you can have, and it was almost just like a, uh, like a can of soup. You know, Donald, we were looking at pictures all morning long of that plane coming into uh, building number two, and when you see that uh, approach the, the far side, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a millisecond, the explosion pops out the other side. Right. I just think that there was a plane with more than just fuel. I think, obviously, they were very big planes. They were going very rapidly because I was also watching where the plane seemed to be not only going fast, it seemed to be coming down into the building. So it was getting the speed from going downhill, so to speak. Uh, it just seemed to me that to do that kind of destruction is even more than a big plane because you're talking about taking out steel, the heaviest caliber steel that was used on a building. I mean, these buildings were rock solid. How about that? You're listening to a 9-11 19th anniversary special on The Conspiracy Show. My interview with the late Philip Marshall, author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. That's just ahead. Don't go away. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to my special 9-11 19th anniversary special. This interview was recorded in September of 2012. I'd just returned from Santa Monica, where I'd met and interviewed Phil Marshall on the Santa Monica Pier. We spoke a few more times on the phone after that interview, which was for my TV program. I don't believe that interview ever aired. So, here's how it sounded. Have a listen. Philip Marshall is a veteran airline captain, former government special activities contract pilot. He's authored three previous books on top secret America. 
And his latest, as I just mentioned, is The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Time is tight. The information here is so compelling, so important. So let's get right to it. Philip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, good evening, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And it was uh, a delight meeting you in Santa Monica a couple of weeks back and a real eye-opener. Yes. Let me uh, begin uh, by saying this. I um, I finished the book, and I uh, again, I think it's important that uh, everyone within earshot uh, get a copy. Not that, uh, you know, we're, not that I, I normally promote books to this extent, but I think you've really nailed this one. Uh, like a lot of people, I got distracted with the whole controlled demolition uh, aspect of this unsolved crime. And now, after reading your book, Philip, I am convinced that that is a huge distraction, uh, maybe by design, I'm not sure. But um, a lot of the information, uh, the, uh, the I mean, this is the, 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 the world's biggest unsolved crime, and a lot of the information that solves it is contained in a report that was uh, issued by the Congressional Joint Inquiry, something that most people have never heard of, fewer have even read. Tell me about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. When when was it formed and, and, and who were its um, leaders? Yeah, it was, uh, it was right after the attacks, actually. Uh, in 2002, the inquiry was formed over the objections of the Bush White House. And um, Senator Bob Graham, who was the head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, for the Senate, was the head of that inquiry. And, um, you know, they did a 10-month investigation into it. They were able to find FBI documents, you know, that showed that the FBI agents had, had been following the 9-11 hijackers and that they had been in contact in, in close, uh, uh, continuous contact with uh, Saudi Arabian uh, intelligence agents who were acting as their uh, as their guides through America. Uh, you know, they they landed in. Um, I mean, the, the inquiry report is is fascinating. Uh, it shows that the hijacker, two of the hijackers, had landed in Los Angeles back in uh, January on January 15th to be precise of uh, 2000 and were soon met by Saudi agents who were connected to my area of expertise which is the training of the of the hijackers on the on the Boeing airplanes uh the the uh, uh, Bob Phil uh, or Bob Graham rather uh, who led the inquiry he was joined by a couple of top-notch congressional investigators tell me about them yeah, there was uh, one. Eleanor Hill was a uh, a, a veteran congressional investigator, and another guy named Jake Jacobson, who uh, who was also a F, former FBI uh, agent, and he had turned um, into an investigator. He he investigated it for for the Congress also. And as you as you point out, you have. Two FBI's in this in this scenario. You have the field agents who are trying desperately to avert or avoid uh, catastrophe, and then you have this other FBI with asterisks beside it. Explain the difference between 
the field agents and this other FBI uh, FBI headquarters. I believe you referred to them as. Yeah, well, the, the FBI field agents were following the hijackers. They had um, they were looking for them, and then uh, headquarters basically, um, which was you know being run out of the George Bush Center for Intelligence. Um, you know, every time they sent up. You know, hey, we, we, we found these guys out training, you know, later on in, in the investigation, um, the hijackers were out in the desert in Arizona, uh, training to fly Boeing airplanes. And the FBI field agents actually sent up a message to headquarters, hey, we found these guys out here. We believe they're up to no good. We believe they're doing some sort of a terrorist operation. And, um, you know, they sent the warnings up to Washington, and when they got there, they, they literally disappeared. Now, before we get into uh, a lot of the substance here, which, again, uh, draws, uh, connects the dots, really, between the, the royal house of Saud, members of the royal family uh, of Saudi Arabia, and the 9-11 terrorist, uh, terrorists, uh, and this national security state that you're beginning to describe. Um, let me ask you why we haven't heard about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. If it was, um, uh, you know, struck in, in 2002 and you had uh, Senator Bob Graham leading this and investigators, uh, this is before the 9-11 Commission. Why didn't we hear about this? Why didn't the mainstream media report about this inquiry? Yeah, well, it was Dick Cheney's work. Uh, Dick Cheney actually called Bob Graham on the phone and told him to basically put a lid on it and, um, you know, that if he tried to reveal any of the stuff that they ended up redacting in that report, which was 28 pages worth, that they would face charges of leaking classified information. So they, they threatened him with jail. If he was to release any of this information to the to the media or to the public, and then Bob Graham would later, a couple of years later, write his own book. Uh, I believe it was entitled "Security Matters." Did he divulge this information in that book? Yes, he he, he went into great detail, you know, and, and he made a, a bunch of great points. You know, one one being that, you know, hey, if it would be so difficult, you know, say you and I, Richard, decided we're going to go to Russia and do some sort of a uh, a you know aerial assault like this in a, in a big operation you know how how difficult would it really be you know for for them to detect us in their country trying to pull off some sort of an attack like this but as we look at this there were you know there were at least 20 people involved in the, in the direct conspiracy and um you know the people behind the the scenes who were training these uh, hijackers to become pilots, you know, to fly a mission that lasted about 30 minutes long, you know, you know, it, it really gets, it, it really is almost impossible to think that, you know, that these guys could have been in the country training, you know, for this big mission. You know, we went, we know where they went at the beginning. They went to Florida for their initial, you know, basic training in small airplanes. And then later on, you know, in 2001, they all moved to the they all moved to the desert and started flying these, you know, uh, learning how to fly these Boeing uh, airplanes that they were that was that was used in the attacks. 
Uh, let me remind listeners, Philip Marshall, a veteran airline captain, is with us and uh, uh, has led a comprehensive 10-year study into the tactical plan used by the 9-11 hijackers and is the leading aviation expert on the September 11th attack. Uh, let me just set the table here uh, for those just joining us, Philip. So uh, you believe that, uh, and, and the Congressional uh, Joint Inquiry uh, tends to suggest, that this was an inside job, it was carried out, in part by the the uh, the hijackers, but there was obviously participation within the U.S. administration. Yes, someone you know the the, the entire mission was was carried out by the Saudi Arabian intelligence uh, agency, and you know the nine eleven um, joint inquiry said that you know they were Saudi spies that had seemingly unlimited funds from Saudi Arabia. They knew where they were getting the money from. They, they tracked down the bank accounts, and they were able to find, you know, that they had shared bank accounts with some of the top people in the Saudi monarchy, including uh, this Prince Bandar bin Sultan was, um, you know, he. I, I believe that he was the initial mastermind. And then they later on farmed out, you know, the actual attack and the execution to the former Saudi intelligence chief, uh, a guy named uh, Prince uh, Turkey Al-Fazl, who they found, you know, he left Las Vegas, you know, in the same desert, you know, just a few days after the attacks with a 100 men, you know. So they had a pretty big logistical and tactical team on the ground operating in the U.S., and I believe that, you know, they could not have been operating here without some sort of protection from our intelligence community. Uh, you, you, you point out that uh, Bandar al-Sultan Sultan is, is um, or at least you, you, you were describing this to me when we were in Santa Monica together, that, uh, that he is so close uh, to the Bush family that he's known as Bandar Bush. Yes, and, you know, before 9-11, I was actually studying the Iran-Contra uh, affair that I was involved in back in the 80s, and his name came up as a financier in the illegal arming of the Nicaraguan Contras. You know, so the Bush, uh, the Bush Cheney, uh, Saudi connection goes way back. It goes back at least 30 years to when, you know, these guys have worked together on several covert missions together. Now, Bandar was at the time the ambassador to Washington, was he not? That is correct. And, you know, we found, I mean, he met Donald Rumsfeld in, I have a picture of him on our Facebook page. Uh, our Facebook page is called The Big Bamboozle, and uh, it's a good place to go. That's where we put we post a lot of our uh, videos and a lot of the media coverage that we believe is, is nonsense, and then we will rebut the, you know, the postings that the media makes. But... Um, you know, Bandar is, you know, he, he is really, <laughs> he goes back along, he, he goes along, back a long way with the, with the Bush uh, family. Okay, so let's say one group of people, like the American people, pay you $400,000 a year to be President of the United States. But then another group of people invest in you, your friends, and their related businesses $1.4 billion over a number of years. Because that's how much the Saudi royals and their associates have given the Bush family, their friends, and their related businesses in the past three decades. 
Is it rude to suggest that when the Bush family wakes up in the morning, they might be thinking about what's best for the Saudis instead of what's best for you or me? That clip you heard um, was from Michael Moore's documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11. Not a Michael Moore fan, but I think at least he came close to getting at the truth. Wouldn't you agree, Phil? Yeah, he was on the right track for sure. Um, you know, the, the missing link here to all the, you know, the, these theories uh, with the Saudis is is what I was investigating, and, and that is basically the nuts and bolts of 9-11. You know, how they actually executed the attack, how they actually trained the hijackers, how they actually flew the mission, you know, um, how, how they prepared for it, how they, um, you know, how they started, you know, years in advance. This thing, you know, there's there's another group called the Project for a New American Century. I bet you've heard of that. Oh, yes. And um, they, you know, they basically wrote the blueprint for the post-9-11 world, which was to invade the Middle East and to pretty much clamp down on, you know, American society. Um, you know, you can look at this as the the central intelligence has, has basically taken over the United States government. They've changed their name to the United States Intelligence Community. They're based at the George Bush Center of Intelligence in Langley, Virginia. And they now control 16 of our most powerful agencies in Washington. And... Um, you know, those include the Department of Homeland Security, you know, DHS, the TSA, Transportation Security Agency, the CIA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, and here's the big one, the United States Treasury, where over $15 trillion have disappeared from our Treasury since the 9-11 attack. So this is a coup d'etat. Uh, it's the second coup d'etat. First, they took the executive branch over in 63 in Daly Plaza, and then, I guess, the remaining important uh, um, uh, departments uh, with 9-11. Phil, uh, Phil, is, um, Phil Marshall is with us, the author of The Big Bamboozle. I, I mentioned before the break, uh, Prince Bandar, member of the Saudi royal family, was the ambassador to Washington, D.C. during 9-11, his wife, did she not write checks to the, the terrorists? Yeah, well, they, they had a joint bank account at the Riggs Bank in Washington that was in business, I think, since 18, 1830 or so, you know, way back before the, you know, before the Civil War even, you know, and, uh, this was a big Washington powerful bank and, you know, she had an account there and so did Bandar himself. And then the hijackers, the people who were uh, supporting the hijackers, were harboring the hijackers on the West Coast, also had a bank account at that same bank. And there was transfers that the Congressional Joint Inquiry found that went from her bank account directly to the people who were aiding the hijackers. So, I mean, this is not conspiracy uh, theory, folks. This is the, these are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry, which was largely ignored, muzzled, uh, by, uh, Dick Cheney. Even, uh, now, did Cheney not sick the FBI to investigate the, uh, the members of the inquiry? Yeah, according to Graham's book, uh, you know, he wrote a book called Intelligence Matters. And, um, you know, he described how, you know, they were threatening, 
you know, the, the investigators, the congressional staff and everything with lie detector tests, with all kinds of, you know, intrusive, uh, you know, interrogations and just threaten them and they muzzled them into silence. And that's exactly what uh, Senator Graham said. They were muzzled into silence by Dick Cheney. Now, the, the Saudi uh, agent that, that met uh, at least two of the hijackers, I believe, in, in San Diego. Uh, tell me about this individual. Yeah, well, this guy was named Omar al-Bayoumi, and he was a, um, he was a Saudi national living in the United States, living, living in San Diego. And on uh, just a couple of days after the hijackers had landed in, in Los Angeles, he drove up to the Saudi embassy and met behind closed doors at the Saudi embassy and left that meeting and, and went directly to a, a small restaurant in Los Angeles where the hijackers were waiting. And he, now the thing that I found really interesting about him was he was the guy that I was looking for because when I put the, uh, I began my research by putting together the attack. I recreated the attack. I recreated the times that they departed, how they flew the mission, what kind of air, you know, aviation uh, skills were needed to fly this mission. And I determined that they had definitely had contact with Boeing experts. And this guy, Omar Bayoumi, was working for a company called Dalla Avco out of on the West Coast. But they were based in Saudi Arabia, and they had Boeing aircraft that they had underneath their, uh, under their certificate. So this was my aviation expert that I was looking for. And he was, he wasn't an aviation expert, but he led them to the company that had training materials, had simulators, had all the, you know, all the things that you would need to, you know, train the hijackers. And I'm sure he had access to, uh, Arabic speaking flight instructors for the Boeing aircraft. Omar Al Bayoumi. This is he's he was an is an employee of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority. Right. And he met these hijackers. Now this again is cor- according to the Congressional Joint Inquiry. Yes. He was someone that the FBI were very interested in speaking to. Yes. What happened when the inquiry tried to speak to this individual? Well, they actually served him a subpoena or are they they wrote up a subpoena and um, the FBI headquarters and the, the Bush White House refused to serve him the subpoena. Why? They didn't give a reason. They just said... <laughs> you cannot interview this individual. Yeah. This so. is someone who had contact with at least two, perhaps three hijackers prior to the 9-11 attacks, had repeated meetings with them, and the inquiry was told by the FBI, by Dick Cheney, don't you dare speak to this individual. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, and the, the most interesting one is is the, uh, the 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 eventual pilot hijacker for American seventy seven, uh, a guy named Hanny Hanjour. This is the one that hit the Pentagon. This is the one that yeah, flew into the Pentagon. That's the one that hit the Pentagon exactly. And he flew into town um, into San Diego. Um, you know, the day after Bush was declared president by the Supreme Court. And soon after, within the next week, all three of them left the San Diego area, and that's when they went out into the deserts in Arizona and began to train for the mission. Now, we need to spend some time uh, discussing 
how this was pulled off. Because as you point out in The Big Bamboozle, everything we knew about Al-Qaeda, if there is an Al-Qaeda, uh, up until this point, up till this point, was all about car bombs and, and uh, you know, shoe bombs and, and, and pretty awkward, clumsy attempts to bring down airliners. Now all of a sudden, we're led to believe that they're capable of something far more complex. I mean, exponentially more complex, bringing down uh, or bringing the, the most sophisticated uh, military uh, and defense mechanism ever known to man to its knees. It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. Oh, it, it's it's absolutely impossible to suggest that these guys, the ones that, and and the thing is, is that there's no evidence. When you when you read over the real evidence in this case, the facts are all point to the Saudi operation, and to suggest that some guy that's living in a cave without electricity was the guy that defeated all U.S. national security is is it's preposterous. More of my conversation with the late Philip Marshall on the other side. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Up until I, I read your book, Phil, I part of me still believe that it, those buildings may have been brought down in part by controlled demolition or some other device, that it wasn't possible, for example, for Hani Hanjour to maneuver Flight 77 into the Pentagon in that way. But you say, I mean, you're, you're speaking as a veteran commercial airline pilot, the things that they did on 9-11, it is possible with the right training. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've flown the patterns in the simulator that they flew. Now, the most difficult one was the one that hit the Pentagon. He, he didn't take over the airplane, and I, I point this out in the book, you know, how the errors that they made. I believe that they meant to take that airplane over a lot earlier, but they didn't. For some reason, they didn't take the airplane over until it was almost 300 miles to the west of Washington. I think the initial plan was to take it around 70, 80 miles, something like that. So there, there was some kind of a, a malfunction going on with the, with the hijacking that they didn't take the airplane over when they should have. It really exposed who was behind it because all that time that it took them to fly, I mean, they were flying for 40 minutes, you know, at 500 miles an hour straight while the country was under attack. Something that would look like a missile on a radar, you know, a 500 mile an hour object coming straight at the nation's capital, it really exposed them. But to, to see the way he flew that airplane, you know, he turned it around, you know, he descended, he took the autopilot off for a while, he put it back on, he came down to 9,000 feet over Dulles Airport, you know, and this is 30 minutes into after they took over the airplane, and supposedly NORAD didn't see this, this missile coming right at Washington. Disconnected the autopilot, he came down to about 7,000 feet, he did a very advanced right descending turn. This is all on the on the black box recordings, the FAA radar, NTSB reports that I was able to, to get. And he rolled out about 2,500 feet, about four miles to the west of the Pentagon, pushed up the throttles all the way to, to the firewall, basically, and nosed the airplane down and hit the Pentagon at an incredible speed, 480 knots indicated. For that airplane at that altitude, the red line is at about 350 knots. So, I mean, this guy really did some phenomenal flying. But, like I said, 
this guy had time in airplanes before. He had a commercial pilot's license for smaller single-engine airplanes, but definitely he could have been trained up easily to that level of flying, but it would take many, many practice sessions to get that type of proficiency. And uh, American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175 that hit the North and South Towers, uh, likewise, those maneuvers, could, you could do that if you had enough training? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are normal procedures. They're procedures that we practice in the simulator all the time. Basically, uh, 175, the one that we've all seen that hit the South Tower. So, you know, he was over New Jersey at 31,000 feet and basically did a, what we call a, a high dive, which is in case you blow out your uh, pressurization. We practice this all the time where you throttles off, boilers out, you just let the airplane dump down. How would they know exactly where to hit it to cause the buildings to collapse? Well, I think he was trained to hit at a certain point where you were out of the range of the water cannons. And then, you know, if you look, you know, people say, well, you know, a missile or, or whatever. But look, a, a Tomahawk missile weighs 2,500 pounds. It's not a very big missile. A Boeing 767 weighs 300,000 pounds. It would be the equivalent of hitting that building with about 100 Tomahawk missiles when you consider that that airplane, 300,000 pounds with 30,000 gallons of jet fuel in it. That was the biggest conventional missile. Even though it was an airliner, it, it's a missile. But we were told that the hijackers basically learned to do this by flying in some single-engine planes and then watching some movies. <laughs> Why would they say that? Why wouldn't they give us a more believable story and say, no, they had training. You know, they used simulators. Maybe they even flew a, fl a few Boeings. Yeah, well, they knew that they went into simulators down in Miami and, and one in Arizona. And then I believe that they actually got into real airplanes because at, at a certain intelligence community airport just north of Tucson, Arizona, I did the research on it, and that airport had Boeing 757s and 767s parked at that airport okay, at let me the just, very time. Again, this is not conspiracy theory. These are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry led by a former Florida Senator a Republican moderate by the name of Bob Graham. And it, well, what what was um, not redacted certainly clearly shows a connection between the uh, the Saudi royal family and the 9-11 attackers, or the 9-11 terrorists, rather. Uh, but none of that could have happened without complicity from somewhere inside the United States government. Now is it is it, does the does the congressional inquiry go so far uh Phil as to indict individuals in the US government uh for this cover up or do they simply hint that there was a cover up what what do they say? Um I know the parts that have been declassified do not go into that. Uh, however, uh, Senator Graham has, you know, vehemently, uh, you know, exposed that the, there was 28 pages that are still classified that go into greater detail. And um, th those 28 pages, now th this is a report, this is a congressional report paid for by the taxpayers to get to the bottom of the 9-11 incident. And... Um, the attack. And, um, you know, for, for Dick Cheney to step in there and say, no, I'm sorry, you guys, this is classified. 
And when everyone on that committee was saying that there was nothing, nothing that affected national security, that it was just a total embarrassment, they called it, to the um, to the to the Bush administration. Now, let's get back to this um, this covert airfield that you've concluded was where the terrorists, where the hijackers were trained in simulators. Now, first of all, is it possible, speaking as a veteran airline uh, captain, is it possible for an individual to fly in Boeing simulators undetected? Uh, it'd be very, very difficult. I mean, there there's contracts contractors that 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 uh, rent out Boeing simulators to you know potential pilots now I'm not talking about simulators here I'm talking about actual airplanes that were on the ground at this uh, this airbase um, that's known for covert activity it, it goes all the way back to the Air America days when they were training in the c-123s and um, you know this airport has a long history of black operations and uh, covert operations being trained out of that airport. So there's a lot of top secret stuff going on out there. I went out there myself to, to visit that airport one night and I saw all kinds of Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, I saw C-131s, C-130s, you know, out there practicing training all throughout the night. So, so you've deduced that this this airfield is where the hijackers uh, learn to fly Boeing's. That's my that's my educated guess. The um, you know at the at the time we had Saudi. We knew we had the Saudi hijackers out there. We had the Saudi uh, intelligence people out there. And we know that there were 757s and 767s, the, the same planes that were used in the attack. They were parked at this field. Would they have actually been able to to, to do a dry run and actually fly, take take their turn uh, in the captain's chair of a 757 or a 767 while in flight? Absolutely. Absolutely. They could have done that many, many, many times over. And the, the Congressional Joint Inquiry and, and the 9-11 Commission both found that all of the pilot hijackers had made trips, you know, in, into the desert um, for, for, from about May until August of uh, 2001, where they would, they would land at Las Vegas Airport in the, in the desert and they would disappear for three or four days at a time, and then they would reappear and go back to the East Coast. And that every last one of them was documented to do that. And in the Big Bamboozle, I show you know all of these you know all, all the testimony of the of the FBI director who was who actually mentioned those flights. And again. It's not possible, for example, that these hijackers told the people that were training them were members of the, uh, you know, were, were bodyguards for the Saudi royal family. They want us to train as pilots. Why couldn't they have, have used that excuse? Oh, well, they used that excuse when they were in basic training down in Florida, when people were asking them what they were doing, you know, in Florida, learning how to fly airplanes. And they, they said that they were Saudi royal family bodyguards learning how to fly airplanes. But when they got out into the desert, um, the FBI agents were following them around, you know, and, and reporting 
hey, you know, these guys are out here, you know, in the desert. They're learning how to fly airplanes. We think they're doing some kind of a terrorist activity. They sent that up. You know, it, that's all documented in the report. This, uh, this FBI uh, field agent out of Phoenix uh, reported them. That, I mean, they could have stopped this. They could have stopped the attack probably 10 times from the time just on the FBI reporting, you know, through their own channels. All right, we'll take a time out. Phil Marshall, the Big Bamboozle, stays with us. Back with more. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. President Bush continuing his track through the Middle East. He lands in Saudi Arabia this morning, where the government there declared a national holiday in his honor. His warm welcome comes on the coattails of a $20 billion arms deal that the U.S. has pledged for Saudi Arabia. The deal gives Saudi Arabia the right to buy precision-guided missiles from the U.S. Welcome back. Let me crib here quickly from the Big Bamboozle. From the moment the hijackers arrived on U.S. soil, it is well documented that Saudi intelligence agents and employees of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority provided housing, obtained driver's licenses, and harbored them. After lying low as a sleeper cell throughout the year 2000, they would be led to intensive flight training in the Arizona desert in December of 2000, which leads to the first plausible explanation of the incredible flying performance demonstrated on 9-11. After submitting an 800-page report to the American public, moderate U.S. Senator Bob Graham of Florida, the co-chairman of the inquiry, said, quote, There was a direct line between the terrorists and the government of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi government had provided logistical and financial support to at least two of the 9-11 hijackers while they lived in Southern California. Graham chronicled that FBI headquarters had responded aggressively to Cheney's request that the FBI investigate the inquiry staff during the investigation, interviewing dozens of members of Congress and their aides. The Bureau suggested it wanted to use polygraphs on some of the lawmakers with the threat of prosecution and jail, of being traitors in a time of war. To, to Graham, the entire experience seemed surreal. So, the, nine, uh, the, uh, the inquiry connects the dots to uh, Saudi intelligence, and then goes on to document how, or at least uh, Bob Graham did in his book, how Dick Cheney and the FBI wanted to cover this up. To me, that's pretty much case closed. You don't have to believe in controlled demolition to know that certain elements within the U.S. government working with Saudi intelligence pulled 9-11 off. Uh, Philip Marshall, uh, back to this airfield. Is there a connection between this airfield and Blackwater? Oh, yes. Um, you know, th- there was an author named Jeremy Scahill who wrote the book Blackwater, and he really chronicled the connections between the uh, the number three man, supposedly, at, at, at CIA, um, a guy named Buzzy Krongard. Um, he, was, he was the man who was doling out contracts, you know, no-bid contracts to, to Blackwater on behalf of, of us, the taxpayers, basically. And uh, he was also the head of, of the same investment firm, you know, uh, he was formerly the head of the, the, the same investment firm who placed put option trades, stock trades on two airlines. Only two airlines were, were traded in, in, in big portions in the week prior to 9-11. And it was by his firm, and the, the only two airlines that they used were American and United Airlines. They, 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 um, 
they they traded stock they put put options you know you know betting that that the the stock price for united and american would go down they did not place any other stock options on any other airlines and that was done through the chicago stock exchange but how do we know it was fuzzy krongard uh we don't know that it was from him but we know that it was from the firm that he once founded so there is a connection there alex brown bank was that it uh exactly alex mm-hmm. brown all right let's grab some calls uh our good friend media scientist nelson thal checks in I agree. You know, the planes are a distraction. I mean, look at Building 7, right? I mean, what are they going to say there? An invisible plane hit the building? But (laughs) you see the whole situation. But, you know, the real question is, what about the dancing Israelis? I don't think there was just any one. But this is too big for any... If anybody knows anything about the intelligence agencies, this is too big an operation for just one. I'm sure the Saudis were involved, but there were a lot of... Well, we are focused. On the... And um, uh, so far, the banned book on the subject, it's also as important as English literature, media scientists. Rich, we should remember, um, Andreas von Bülow's book was banned, and he talked about the CIA and 9-11. So there were lots of agencies involved, and uh, there were dancing Israelis, too. And I wonder about what you think about the, about the, uh, or the, the author of this book. It sounds like an interesting book. I haven't read it. But what does he think about the other uh, reports and uh, what brought down Building 7? I'd be interested in what he found. Well, the Building 7 thing is, is suspicious to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not a building expert. My, my area of expertise is the airplanes and how they got to where they were on 9-11. You know, I'm not an expert on how buildings come down. But um, as far as the dancing Israelis, I think we need to look at that project for a new American Century uh, document real close again, the Rebuilding America's Defenses. A lot of those guys, Paul Wolfowitz was in there, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, these were all Cheney people. As you point, a lot, a lot of special interest groups, uh, individuals, we need to point out, we're talking about individuals here. We don't want to point fingers at countries or, or nationalities. Now, as for, as for Building 7, I mean, when I look at that, that could have been controlled demolition. Like I said, that's way out of my area of expertise. My area is the airplanes and how they got to where they got. We'll take a quick time out and then more on the Saudi connection to 9-11 and my conversation with the late Philip Marshall. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to my 9-11-19th anniversary special. Now, I've dipped into my vast audio archives tonight, and I hope you had a chance to listen to Hour 1 and my August 2016 interview with Dr. Judy Wood, the author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Energy Technology on 9-11. And now, we return to my 2012 interview with the late Philip Marshall, former airline pilot, CIA contract pilot, and author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11, and the War on Terror. All right, let's say hello to Michael in the Beaches. Michael, welcome. Yes, uh, good evening, Richard and uh, Phil Marshall. I seem to remember years ago uh, hearing some hijacker uh, being quoted as saying that he didn't want to know how to 
you know, start the plane or take off. And he didn't want to know how to land the plane. He just simply wanted to know how to fly the plane. And if that is true, that he allegedly said this, where would he have gotten the training? And was he one of the hijackers that died as well? Yeah, now that was in, that was in the uh, the basic training phases when these guys were learning how to fly smaller airplanes, and they, they were getting introduction courses in a Boeing simulator down in uh, Opelika, Florida. I believe that's where this incident happened. The guy went in there. They're trying to prepare themselves for the training that was coming up on the airplanes, I believe. So that when he went into that simulator, he said, well, I don't really need to know how to take off. I just need to know how to fly around. Michael, thank you for the call. You mentioned earlier uh, uh, a Prince Turkey El Faisal, another member of the royal family. Uh, again, what, his connection to the 9-11 uh, hijackers was what? Well, he was he was in the desert, and uh, they they departed Las Vegas. There wasn't anything written up on him until they they started looking into these flights that left uh, Las Vegas on September nineteenth, twentieth, and I think twenty second, um, right after the attack. And there were three chartered airliners that left Las Vegas back going back to, to the kingdom, and he was on one of them. And there was a hundred men with him so he had been in the desert at the same time that the hijackers had been in the desert and and the people who were harboring them now it's interesting because some of the the survivors or the families of uh, those killed in the 9-11 attacks they launched a, a class action suit against prince turkey al faisal did they not that's correct and and and, and what happened with that suit that suit was thrown out because the the federal judge ruled that you know we we can't sue a, a company a, a country who is operating on U.S. soil, <laughs> e- even though that that is illegal for a, for a foreign intelligence agency to be operating on U.S. soil. And and who was the lawyer for Turkey Al Faisal? Um, well, it came out of. Uh, James Baker's law firm down there, you know, James Baker and, and, and the Bush family are real tight. He was um, chief of staff for, for, for George 41. Exactly. And James Baker and George 41, during the Reagan years, you have concluded, were essentially responsible for the, uh, the Iran-Contra. Exactly, yes. Do you think, then, that James Baker and George 41 were also involved along with Dick Cheney uh, with the Saudi uh, the Saudi uh, Civil Aviation Authority and, and uh, uh, members of the, the, the Saudi royal family in orchestrating 9/11. Yeah, I mean, I believe that they this is a long term plan to take over our government, and I I wrote about that in my first book uh, that was titled Lakefront Airport. It's not available for sale right now, but it will be soon. Um, but yes, I, I started to make the connect the dots between James Baker, the Bush family, the Saudi family, and um, you know all this before 9/11 even even started. So, would you then conclude that we are what we what we witnessed on 9/11 was a was a coup d'état? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what what has happened to our government since then. Um, you know, and, and the big thing is that, you know, our justice system has been railroaded 
Um, you know, they they, they blame that at, at the same time they were training these Saudis, the back channels and CIA were floating this rumor about some some dark ghost that nobody had ever seen. You know, some some spooky guy named you know Osama bin Laden. You know, you know, boo, and, you know, trying to trying to. You know, so so they were spreading the through the back channels that this guy was getting ready to attack. So on when when the attack came down, everyone in CIA and everyone in in the intelligence community said, "Oh yeah, we know who's who's going to do who who did this." You know, it's, it's this guy Osama bin Laden. And then, but when you look into it, there is no no not one shred of evidence of any involvement in the planning or the execution of the attack. Now, Prince Bandar, it, it was reported on July 26th, again, the former Saudi ambassador to Washington, that he was assassinated. Uh, what do we know about Prince Bandar's whereabouts? Is he, in fact, dead, or do we know? Well, it's been known for, it, 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 there's been rumored for quite some time that he's he's got major drug and alcohol problems, um, and that he'd been in some kind of an asylum or some kind of rehab facility for years. It's well documented that he has drug and alcohol issues. And for him, you know, he's been coming and going in the media, and I think it's probably just another propaganda ploy. It might be his his plan to escape, just say that, oh, I'm dead, and disguise himself and go live on on an island somewhere for the rest of his life. I don't know. Phil, when it comes to 9-11, skeptics uh, who suggest there's no way it would have been uh, an inside job, it's even, you know, odious and... and, uh, disgusting to suggest such a thing and they say so where are the whistleblowers well we've got senator bob graham sort of blowing the whistle but where are these fbi field agents who tried to tell their higher-ups that this was going on and they were repeatedly ignored why aren't they speaking out why aren't they more vocal you know that's a good question in a federal trial you know which i have always pushed for you know bring this khalid sheikh mohammed to trial bring these guys up on on a witness stand and let them do it but you know this is what i call a beer bottle cap conspiracy you know you've got all these people down in the middle of the of the bottle that are doing the grunt work the real americans the real people who are who are honest but it, right at the top, they put the director of the FBI in there, and he holds down all that information. So it would be very interesting to get these guys on the stand and, and, and hear what they have to really say. Uh, Philip, job well done with The Big Bamboozle. How can folks get a copy of this book? It's very important that they do. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. We have it on Kindle. It's also all throughout Europe and um, you know, the U.K. We have it on uh, Amazon U.K. and Amazon Europe. Um, so it's available. It's easy to pick up on Amazon. All right. Terrific job. And thanks for joining me, Phil. Thank you, uh, Richard. And thank you for uh, keeping this subject alive. It's the least I can do. All right, my man. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. There you go. The late Phil Marshall. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of the circumstances behind Phil's death, but less than five months after this interview, probably one of Phil's last interviews, he supposedly took a gun shot his two teenage children while they slept, killed the family dog, and then shot himself. At least that's the official story. I'm not sure I buy it. Not that I can say I knew Phil that well, but we talked on the phone, exchanged maybe a dozen emails. We met in person, as I mentioned earlier, on the Santa Monica Pier and talked for about two hours. He seemed to me to be a very kind, gentle, rational human being. 
And some independent researchers who looked into the alleged murder-suicide said Phil was either right-handed or left-handed, I can't remember, but the, the gun was found in the wrong hand. They supposedly interviewed a neighbor who said that there was a suspicious character around the house shortly before the incident. Now, I don't know what to tell you. I will say this. Immediately upon hearing the news of Phil Marshall's death in February of 2013, I checked my email as I always do when someone I know has passed away. I always check to see the last email correspondence. And I do not delete emails until my email is completely full. And then I go back and delete emails from two, maybe three years prior. I've always done this. And besides, the final email correspondence with Phil was after the final radio interview, five months prior to his death. So I typed Phil's email into the search box. Nothing, nothing came up, no emails. The entire thread was gone. I'm not sure what to make of that either. So, my thanks to Carlos Cagina and Ryan White back next week with Carl Gallops and more biblical prophecy. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.